So today we're ending our series in Romans and we're doing the second half of the series. So what I thought I would do today as we were going to do the back half of Romans 15 and Romans 16, the last part of Romans, what I thought I'd do is just a little bit of an overview of the whole book and then we'll do 15 and 16 which largely is a recasting of Romans 1. So we'll be, we'll be reviewing the overview and then we'll be looking at 15 and 16 which has a lot of the same things as one as you would expect someone who's going to be a phenomenal communicator is going to open with some points and then they're going to fill it in and then they're going to close with the same points if you ever took a uh, speaking course from Herman, he emphasizes this over and over again. It's always have three points, tell them what the three points are going to be, then tell them the three points, and then reemphasize the three points. I try to do that. I'm not very good at it. But uh, I'm just going to have two points today. One is going to be kind of the overview, and then we're going to look at 15 and 16 and compare it to one and kind of wrap this thing up. I could, I guess, have a third point, which is going to be these people involved and how they... Uh, how they how they ha- had a story, I guess, and uh, that brought this letter to us, and that's going to be mostly my imagination. But uh, hopefully, you'll find it interesting. So we've we've done the first part of Romans, Romans one through eleven, and then we did the second part of Romans, Romans twelve through sixteen. The first part of Romans, you remember, uh, first half is all about righteousness. What is righteousness? Where does it come from? How do we get it? And the answer is, it comes from faith to faith. And we get it when we receive the power to live a righteous life by believing on Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, all of which is a complete gift. It was a gift for Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's nothing we can do to incorporate this declaration of righteousness to God, to receive this imputed righteousness from God. There's nothing we can do. It's just, it's just a gift. But then righteousness exemplifies itself. It becomes experiential when we walk in it day by day and live it by faith. And most of 1 through 11 is talking about righteousness as a matter of faith. It's from faith to faith. You receive the power to live it and then you experientially walk on a daily basis in it through faith. He's mainly, of course, writing to contest some competing authorities who have slandered his position that righteousness comes by faith. And their slander of of Paul's position is that Paul teaches, this is what the opposing authorities say, Paul teaches you should do evil that good may come. Because they take the statement of Paul that says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, i.e., we can't not outsend the grace of God. It's just given to us. It's a gift. No matter how much we sin, Jesus' blood overcomes it. They took that statement and say, well, that means that the law is no longer necessary. And if that's true, then Paul is teaching that if you don't obey the law, God, grace abounds all the more, and that elevates God's standing. So therefore, what Paul is teaching is that you ought to sin as much as possible because that does... Paul, I'm sorry, God a favor, and God is elevated when you sin more. See how crazy his teaching is. No, no, no. Righteousness comes from the law. It, Moses started with Moses. It's come all the way through. Skip through the gift of the Jews. You have to obey the law. Paul, of course, counters and says, the law is actually an agency of sin. I wouldn't even have known sin had it not come from the law. But it's not the law's fault that sin 
is, is, uh, that it's an agency of sin. It's my fault. I'm not any better. These guys, their condemnation is just. These guys that are slandering me. But I'm not any better than them because we're all under sin. That's kind of the whole point. We can't obey the law. That's the problem. It's not the law's fault. It's our fault. Grace, the free gift of God's grace, that's our only way out. Now, can we sin? Then grace will abound all the more. Yes, we can and we do. If you admit it. But... Should we try to do that then? Of course not. That's crazy. Sin is slavery. You want slavery? You've been delivered from slavery? You want to go back into it? What kind of craziness is that? Sin is death. You've been delivered from death? You want to go back into it? What kind of nutty idea is that? You've been delivered from being a zombie and you miss the good old days? You want to be a zombie again? What kind of nutty idea is that? Sin brings really, really severe negative consequences. You now have the power to extract yourself from those negative consequences. And you want to go back into it? No, no, I'm missing those those consequences. I want all that bad stuff to happen to. I mean, can you? Yes. What kind of crazy idea is it to do that? So uh, the the notion here is that, you know, we, we need to change the way we think about what sin is. Sin's death, slavery, and condemnation. We want the power to get out of it, and we have it. And the way we get out of that is to set that aside and walk in love, love other people. That's how the way we get out of it. Then he goes into a secondary question. Well, what about the Jews? If, if law is set aside, doesn't that mean Israel is set aside? And Paul says, oh, of course not. God's promises are irrevocable. He never makes a promise and then shifts it and switches it to someone else. You know, sadly, from what I can tell, most of uh, Christian thought over the last 1,500 years, believes this, that God was disappointed in Israel and said, okay, I'm going to take this church thing and I'm going to substitute it in. I'll cast Israel aside. I'm going to substitute the church. That's, that's the dominant thinking. Well, if, if he would do that, then why wouldn't he say, well, you know, I, I, Terry, I, uh, I saved you and, and I made you my child, but I don't like you anymore. I'm going to substitute Becky. Man, what, what kind of God is that? And Paul says, no, he doesn't do that. He, when he promises something, when he gives something, it's irrevocable. He never takes anything back. And Paul says, all Israel will be saved. But their rejection is actually a benefit to the world right now. In this amazing way, we can't even understand God's ways. They're so past finding out. The rejection of the Jews is actually this amazing thing for the Gentiles because it's bringing them into the olive tree that is Israel and we're getting grafted in as a branch. But you Gentiles, don't get too haughty about this. You need to understand that the root is Israel. And we're, grant, we're grafted into Israel. We're still Gentiles, but we're grafted in. And then he ends that 1 through 11, and he goes on and does 12 through 16. And so far, he's given us three pictures of what righteousness is. Now, righteousness comes by faith. Faith is the evidence of what's not seen. It's hoping for what you don't have that you can't see. So, by its very nature, if we're walking by faith, we're walking in something that's completely intangible. And so Paul does us a favor and says, look, this walk by faith thing, it requires faith. You can't control it. 
It's not tangible. The reason people like laws is because it gives them a checklist. And they can say, I went to church, they didn't, I'm okay, they're not. I read my Bible 45 minutes, they read theirs 43, I'm okay, they're not. I do my Bible study at 6.30 in the morning, they do it at night, I'm okay, they're not. Or whatever, it gives them a list. I'm in control now. I'm in control of righteousness. And Paul says, no, no you're not. You're fooling yourself when you do that kind of stuff. That's not it. Here's what righteousness looks like. It looks like, chapter 12, a body. You know, body, fingernails don't try to be eyelashes. You know, what if suddenly your finger just started blinking? And your eyelash started, uh, you, know, doing, you know, I'm not going to blink anymore. I'm going to now wave. <laughs> it would be strange. But everything does its part. Everything's doing what it's supposed to be doing. So we all have gifts. And we take those gifts and we apply them for every, each other's benefit. That's what righteousness looks like. It looks like everybody doing what they do best for the benefit of other people. And, and then in chapter 13, he showed us righteousness looks like a self-governing community where the government puts boundaries up that, that, that uh, uh, encourage good and, and discourage evil. And then within those boundaries, people love one another voluntarily. And in a community like that, you're going to have prosperity. You're going to have peace. You're going to have harmony. You're going to have mutual benefit. In chapter 14, he showed us that righteousness looks like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He engaged with people right where they were. And then he encouraged them to take a step towards righteousness. And he dealt with everybody in a totally different way. The Pharisees, he smacked them between the eyes. And the sinful ladies, he gave them a very gentle encouragement. But he gave them the truth. And Zacchaeus, he said, you need to come down and I'm going to go eat at your house. And Zacchaeus received him gladly and said, I'm going to stop being a cheater. Everybody different because you're meeting people where they are. He's engaging them and then he's moving them one step along. Because righteousness comes by faith, from faith to faith. And it looks like this. It looks like this harmonious engagement of one with another. So now, so that's the overview. Now we'll come to 15 and 16. And let's start in 13, 15, 13. And Paul's now winding up the letter. And you might want to take, if you've got a marker or something, you might want to take it and put it in uh, Romans 1 because we're going to be going back and forth to Romans 1. See, I got so confused using an electronic Bible that I printed out this uh, side-by-side here. Kind of looks like a scroll. Go, go old school here. So, Romans fifteen thirteen. Now, may the God of hope... Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've gotten so saturated in our sort of evangelical culture that believing is always associated with birth. But in this book, I hope you've seen that believing is almost always associated with living, not not being born. 
because he wrote the book about the righteous shall live by faith. This is a book about living. Got to be born before you can live. It's a pretty important step. But it's just the first step. And look at, he's talking to these Gentile believers whose faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And he says, now what I want to have happen is, as you believe, you have hope, joy, and peace. That's what I want for your life. Go back to 116. It's kind of a recasting of the theme verse for the whole book. 116 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power. See verse 13. By the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel brings the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for deliverance, salvation. What are we being delivered from? We'll see here in this verse. To everyone who believes, the deliverance comes through belief. We take the power and put it into practice through faith. Because the Holy Spirit's power is spiritual. It's not physical. We turn it into physical when we take what He leads us to do and choose to do it. Power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, 116. To the Jew first, also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. How? From faith to faith. It starts at faith. I believe on Jesus, I get a new nature. And then it's next day it's faith. Am I going to walk in the power of what God's telling me or not? Every day I have that choice. And if I choose to walk in that, righteousness comes out. I take it from this power that's within and I, and I exert it into the world. As it is written, but the righteous man shall what? Be born in faith? The righteous man shall what? Follow the rules? No. The righteous man shall live by faith. This is the theme of the whole book. The righteous man shall live by faith. Well, back to Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. It's believing that makes, that makes righteousness happen. Believing, faith, same, same root word, pistuo. It's believing that brings joy and peace into the world. And that's what righteousness looks like. What does a body look like when it's all functioning? It's harmonious. It's peaceful. If you break your toe, violence has entered your body. You will hop around and scream. And the rest of your body will rebel. Because it hurts. But no, we have joy and peace in believing. And it comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's a gift. Now look at verse 14, chapter 15. And concerning you, my brethren, he's writing to believers here. He's been talking to believers from the beginning. He's still talking to believers at the end. I myself, Paul speaking, also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. Well, if they're full of goodness... Filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. Why in the world did he write this book? Verse 15. But I have written very boldly. Can you say amen to that? I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. 
because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering to the Gentiles, my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm just doing my job. And my job is to take where you already are and move you forward and help you not go backwards. Uh, go to one eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. See, Paul was a southerner. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. See, these Roman believers, they're full of goodness. They're full of knowledge. They have the ability to admonish one another. Their faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's who got this letter. Is he going to write somebody like that to show them how to be justified? To be born? To be born again? Is that what he's going to write this letter for? Of course not. He's writing this letter to establish them. Look in verse 111. For I long to see you, so I might impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, I may be encouraged together with you while among you. See, no matter how far along we are in our faith walk, we still need help. There's always a chance for us to revert and go backwards. There's always the chance for us to learn and do even better. So, he's never met these people before. He's writing to them because uh, he wants to admonish them. He wants to see them move forward. Uh, But he's writing very boldly. And why is he writing very boldly? Well, he's writing very boldly because there's false teachers in Rome. And they are slandering his gospel. And if that slander catches in Rome and and it perverts their thoughts, where is it going to go? It's going to go to the whole world. So Paul is preemptively cutting this off. Now, let me skip back and forth between the second and third point. Just think for a minute. You remember Paul prayed three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed? Nobody's sure exactly what that thorn in the flesh is. There's a debate as to whether it was something physical. Some people say it's his eyes. But I think the better better, uh, projection is that Paul's thorn in the flesh was these Jews that followed him around everywhere. That got him beaten and whipped and thrown in jail and stoned. If it was me and I couldn't see very good, uh, that would bother me. But if I was sort of always in threat of being beaten and had gone through all the things Paul had been gone, I think that would bother me more. And he said, make these guys go away if that's the right thing. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Well, look, look what's happened here. Why is this letter something that we have in our hands right now that we can study? It's only one reason. It's because those bad guys were still after him. And he's having to fight this fight. This fight isn't there. He doesn't write this letter. And how many people have been blessed by this letter? Now, God, interestingly enough, didn't say, Well, okay, Paul, let me explain to you how this is going to work. So God doesn't owe us an explanation. Have you ever said, God, how can you let this happen? 
Let me, rest- let me rephrase that. How many times have you asked, God, how can you let this happen? You know, another way to phrase that, another way, when, when you have that thought coming in your mind, rephrase it like that. God, you owe me an explanation. And then you immediately would say, uh, yeah, actually, God doesn't owe me anything, right? What God gave Paul, he gave him an explanation. My grace is sufficient for you. And who knows what other things came out of that that are amazingly beneficial. But here's one very tangible one we can see here. Because of this fight, we have this letter and we've got this amazing blessing. Because now we know what was, what was in Paul's mind in large part because of this conflict that he had. Well, let's look at verse 22 of chapter 15. For this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come see you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. So, this is the only letter, I think, where Paul's writing to people he didn't have any connection with. He just knew these were kind of the saints in the world in the most powerful place in the world where this contest is going on. He's got to answer them. And he had a longing to go see them. But the reason he didn't go see them is because that wasn't his calling. His calling to go was to go where the gospel had not already been. Look, go look back to one uh, thirteen. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Again, it's brethren. He's writing to believers. I've often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I might obtain some fruit among you. It's typical for people to say that fruit among you means I want to come and get some of you saved. That's hard. It's hard to make that fit. I'm sure Paul would love to have people come to Christ everywhere he goes. I don't think that's what he means here. But again, he's reiterating, I really would like to come see you, but I haven't really been able to, but I'm planning to. And it's very interesting what he's about. He says, now I'm going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. We'll come back to that again in a second. This fruit is interesting. He says, verse 26 of uh, chapter 15, For Macedonia and Achaia, Macedonia is an area around Greece, Achaia is part of Greece, have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So this is is the Gentiles taking up an offering to help those who are being persecuted who are Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. In other words, the Gentiles are indebted to the Jews. Why? Why? Because the Jews are the ones where all this comes from. I mean, the whole Bible, the whole gospel, Jesus was Jewish. You know, it all comes through the Jews. So we got it from them. We'll, we'll minister back to you. You know, it's the body working. We've, we've got money. You don't. We're, we're not in despair. You are. We'll help you out. Yes, they were pleased to do so. Verse 27, they're indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they're indebted to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I finish this, this journey to take this offering to Jerusalem, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs. See, see, fruit, like fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is not going and getting more converts. 
Going and getting more converts is evangelism. It's a really great thing. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It's your life spilling out when the Holy Spirit's living through us. Well, he says this is a fruit of them doing their part in the body. They're helping other people. And I'm going to seal this by delivering it. I'm going to take this, I'm going to take this offering. I'm going to take it to Jerusalem. And I'm going to, and I'm going to, and I'm going to make it happen. Well, fruit. I want to obtain some fruit among you. I want your life, your righteousness, I want to help that flow out even more. I want to find new ways for this to flow out. It could be an evangelism, but it's certainly not limited to that because life, all of life is what God cares about. He cares about how we work. He cares about how we do family. He cares about everything. Every aspect of life is what righteousness is. Every aspect from when we wake up in the morning to when we go to bed at night. When we care for other people, no matter how mundane it is, God is really, really pleased by that. What's the real tangible illustration God always uses, or always uses, frequently uses in the New Testament to show us something that is a evidence of a, of a faithful um, act that He will reward? A cup of cold water in His name. Now, how complicated is that? It's trouble. If you go to Israel, you'll see sometimes going down into these cisterns might be a hundred steps. But it's not like you don't have to have a college degree to do it. You don't have to have a lot of money to do it. You just have to be willing to take the time to give someone a fresh cup of water. Well, that is a big umbrella. Just about everything fits under that. Anytime we do something because God is leading us to do it, that's greatness happening. That's righteousness spilling into the world. That's us doing what God made us to do. That's bringing peace and harmony to the world. It's bringing His kingdom into the world. His face is shining when we do that. It's it's amazing. And we tend to discount it because it's not something flashy. Well, the, the point of all this is really that everyday life matters. And we walk it from faith to faith all day long. Uh... Verse 30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So Paul is going to take this offering from the Greeks, and he's going to take it to Jerusalem. The reason the offering's necessary is because the believing Jews are being persecuted by the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. And he's saying, pray for me that I don't get murdered by them, that I don't get thrown in jail by them. What does happen to him when he goes and delivers this offering? He gets thrown in jail just like that. And he does end up going to Rome. But it's not the way he thought it was going to be. How does he go to Rome? He appeals to Caesar and, and the Romans pay his passage. He actually got to go to Rome on the, on the government. And while he's in chains, he speaks to kings. And instead of just coming to the church in Rome, he ends up in Caesar's household, ministering to the royal uh, connected people in Rome before he loses his head. So, this, this ended up happening just not the way Paul expected. Has that ever happened to you? You ever have your plan thwarted? And you say, well, God, I had this really good plan. What are you doing? 
My, don't, let, me, let me remind you what the map is, God. Okay, we're supposed to do A, and then B, and then C. Get on board with the program. Well, God has like a better navigation team, right? And, and we can see that looking back on Paul, but boy, it's hard to see when, when, it's, when it's our story, isn't it? It's hard to believe that God knows best when uh, you're in a shipwreck or on the way to Rome. And, and, and almost every, and everybody should have died, but didn't. Okay, so was, that, was the shipwreck when he was on his way to Rome, or was that a different time? That was a different, that was a different journey, wasn't it? I think I mixed that one up. So, anyway, whatever's going on there. Uh, so, he says, your prayers for me, go, go back to 1, uh, 10. And he's, uh, let's start with 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, for your, because your faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God, I might succeed in coming to you. God answered that prayer, just not the way Paul thought he was going to. So, and then he comes and says, why don't you pray for me that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea? And he was rescued. He was not killed by them. They wanted to kill him. And the Roman soldiers actually intervened and kept him from being killed. So here, he's praying for them. He wants them to pray for him. Because they're full of goodness and knowledge. And they're able to admonish one another. Their faith is being spoken of throughout the whole world. He prays for them. He wants them to pray for him. And verse 31, that it may prove to the acceptable to the saints. Well, there's saints in, in Jerusalem. That just means, saint just means uh, holy ones, separated ones. A separated ones is anyone who has the Holy Spirit. If we have the Holy Spirit, we're separated from the world because now we have a new nature. We don't have to walk in that new nature. We can go back into the world. And Paul has argued in this, this whole book the reasons why we should not make that choice. But we can make that choice because we're free. C.S. Lewis says we're most like our Creator when we're making choices. Because He has given us a choice. We can walk in the newness of life or we can go back into death. Enormous consequences to that choice. Paul is writing this book to help us make a good choice. But we're free to make it. Well, he, he, these saints in, in, uh, in uh, Jerusalem are just believers in Jerusalem. And, and you go back and look in 1-7. I'm writing this letter to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints. Called, called separated ones. Called holy ones. Uh, you know, everyone in here is a saint. We get mixed up on a little of this because... Uh, uh, the word saint is used sometimes for a particularly uh, a righteous believer, but that's not the way it's used in the Scripture. It's just a separated person. Every single person has this new nature and this capability to walk. So, verse uh, chapter 16, he now starts going into a bunch of people he knows. And let's just... Uh, Let's just read some of them. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who's a servant of the church, which is in Centria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, 
saints again, and that you help her in whatever matter she have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many uh, and of myself as well. Now, let's actually just park on this one for a minute. I think because of the placement of this and because of what he says here, I think it's highly likely that Phoebe is actually the carrier of this letter. Now, now let's just use our imagination here a little bit. You're Phoebe. Let's just say you're a 50-year-old woman. Why in the world would you end up carrying this letter? This is not go down to the UPS office and and mail the letter for me, right? So you're going to go from, oh, well, so where is she coming from? I guess that's the important question. Centuria is the eastern seaport of Corinth. Because Corinth has two seaports, one, one on each side. That's one of the reasons it was such a wealthy place. So she is a servant of the church in Corinth. So she's going to go from Corinth over to uh, Rome. And, and, and let's fit this together with something else we can see. Because we saw previously that he was going to take this offering and go to Jerusalem. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And we can actually see this offering talked about. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Same thing, right? Offerings from Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty, abounded in the riches of liberality. I bear witness according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency, we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So he's, he's got this gift for Macedonia and he's using it in this letter because he's saying, he goes on to say to the Corinthians, you know, you made a pledge too and I'm coming to collect your pledge. Don't disappoint me. I already told everybody about your pledge. Don't make yourself and the gospel look bad because you don't follow through. And most, most, much of the teaching about giving is in this 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That I want you to don't, don't be compelled to give, give cheerfully. But do give. And, and I'm giving you this example of Macedonians. You, you Corinthians, you're wealthy. It's okay if you just give a part of your wealth. The Macedonians are poor, but they understand this sowing and reaping principle. If you want to reap a lot, you sow a lot. So they're sowing a lot, we would say. If you want to make a lot of money, then invest a lot of your money. And, and, and they understand this reaping and, and, and sowing principle. And, and I want you to understand it too. I would like for you to be rich in the things of God. I want you to have a lot of treasures in heaven. But you know what? It's up to you. But I'm coming to get this gift. So it seems as though what's happening here is that Paul came to Corinth to get this gift and now he's getting ready to go and take it back and it sounds like he writes this letter to Rome and dispatches somebody to uh, take the letter back as he's there collecting this gift. And apparently it's Phoebe. Now, And it's a sister, Phoebe. Isn't that interesting? You know, some people estimate that the early church was 70% women which would mean it's about the same as it is today. The, the gospel spread like wildfire, among other reasons, because Christianity is the only philosophy where women are elevated. It's the only one. And every other... Look, the dominant philosophy at this time was paganism. In the Greek culture, you had two kinds of women, among the nobility at least. You had the women that stayed at home and took care of the kids, but you didn't take them out in public. 
and then you had the consorts that you took to the events and for entertainment. Like that system? Which one of those would you want to be? Uh, you know, in most other regions, you know, women were basically uh, the the workhorses. They did all the work, had the babies. Men are the warriors and the and the hunters. That, that's most of the world for most of history. And along comes Christianity, and women are made in the image of God, just like men. Uh, women have this tremendously high, elevated. Look at the way Jesus treated women. So now women have a place. And here you have Phoebe, who's going to go and take this letter, and he says, "Hey, uh, she's been a helper of many, and myself as well." Now just just think about what all she had to go through to make this happen. And then think about what happens once she get there. He goes through Greek Priscilla and Aquila. I'm not back in 16.3 now. Greek Priscilla, Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers who risked their life for my own necks, not who I give thanks, but the churches of Gentiles, and also greet the church that's in their house. So apparently these people have moved to Rome and started a church in their house. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who's the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen. And I hear there are some Jews in this group that's basically Gentiles. And my fellow prisoners, they're notable because there's not many of them, who are out standing among the apostles. So these people have a great name among the apostles, uh, including me, Paul. You know, he's he's, uh, cementing his authority here. Who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Statius, my beloved. Apelles, the approved in Christ. Those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Herodian, my kinsman, another Jew. Greet those of the household of Narcissus. How would you like to be named Narcissus? Who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. Now there's a name. If you have twins, you ought to at least consider this. <laughs> Workers in the Lord. Persis, the beloved, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. Also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philogus and Julia, Nereus, his sister, and Olympus. I like that name. And all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. So why is he naming all these people? I think one of the things that's happening, you, you expect this letter is going to be read all at once, right? Well, he opens with all these things. That, Look, I'd like to come to you. I, I, I couldn't come to you. I'm, I'm writing this. I want to come establish you. I'm writing because I'm, I want to explain to you righteousness. I want to explain to you that unrighteousness brings really bad results. Righteousness brings really good results. You get righteousness by faith, not by the law. I want to explain all that to you. And, and then he goes through and explains what righteousness looks like and then he comes in and he's re, re-summarizing now his whole purpose in this letter and he mentions all these people and I think one of the reasons he's doing this is he can say if you want to validate my, my uh, apostleship go talk to these people who I know these are people with a great reputation right there in your community and they can vouch for me because remember there's people there among them who are slandering Paul And if you only hear one side of any story, you're probably going to see that perspective only. And so 
He's got some people here he's, he's done ministry with in other parts of the world who understand Paul and understand where he's coming from. And he's like, hey, greet these guys. I'm sure he wants them to actually greet them, you know, say hi to my friends. But it's also, you can check me out. You can check out my authority. You can check out my work. So just think about this. There was just one letter sent. And Phoebe sends this letter. She goes on the ship. I don't know how many days it takes to sail from Corinth to Rome. And she gets off the boat. And then she's got to find somebody to deliver it to that represents the church. And then they read it. And then what must have happened? They must have said, this is God's Word. This is powerful. This is the Word of the Apostle. We've got to get this out. Let's get some copies. Or maybe they read it in the assembly. And they said, well, hey... My house church wants to hear that too. And it starts getting spread around. Pretty soon everybody says, hey, let's make copies for everybody so we can get this word out. Rome's got money. Rome's got resources. Finding a copyist to copy this shouldn't be a problem. And pretty soon you have copies spreading out. And, and, and then Rome's the center of the world, right? you got people from all over the place here in this list. You've got Phoebe from Corinth. Phoebe might say, hey, can you make a copy for me? I'd like to take one back to my church in Corinth. And, and we end up with thousands of these things going all over the place. Because one woman said to Paul, hey, I'll take that trip. Maybe she was going anyway. Maybe she's a garment trader. And she's got to go to Rome anyway. And she says, I'll take the letter. One thing we know is it arrived and it made it. You know, there, there's three letters to the Corinthian church. We only have two. Nobody knows what happened to the other one. So we know Paul wrote some stuff that didn't ever make it. And here we've got these people who not only recognized that this is the truth in the face of other competing authorities that are competing for their attention. They knew what the truth was. So his thing, I'm, I'm convinced you're full of goodness, knowledge, able to admonish one another. I, that has to be true. Because if they had gone over to this, this side of these slanders, I, they, they would have just torn this letter up, wouldn't they? So because of this conflict that Paul has with these, let's say, thorn in the flesh, potentially, and because of his fellow workers who are willing to do their part, and because the seed or the ground, the fertile ground of the people who received this seed received it gladly, we're sitting here reading these words 2,000 years later. It's really miraculous, don't you think? Well, I'll be, look forward to meeting Phoebe and hearing her whole story someday. I'm sure it's nothing like what I just made up. But, but it'll be a great story. Verse 25 of chapter 16. Now to him who's able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested... The mystery Christ in us, our hope of glory. See, that Holy Spirit and the power in us and, and choosing to make that manifest in our daily walk, that's what righteousness is. And now the mystery's been revealed and it's revealed in us. What a privilege we have. Let's don't waste it. But 26 now is manifested. And by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God that's been made to all the nations, leading to obedience in the faith. That's what faith leads to, is obedience. 
To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. Once again, verse 25. Now to him who's able to establish, if we go back to 111, we can restate this. We've already mentioned it once. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 11. I long to see you so that I might impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So, we get established by spiritual gifts. We get established by prayer, which is what this last verse is. We get established by Christ Himself. Because He's ultimately the teacher. The Holy Spirit's the one that leads us into all truth. Well, what a what a what a letter this is! What an amazing, what a, an amazing message that Paul gave us. Uh, in a circumstance, I just—it's hard for me to see how Paul could ever see any good coming of this circumstance. And look at all the good that came of it. Um, it's hard to really believe that God has our best interest at heart. That's really difficult. But in this next segment we go into, God willing, that's going to be kind of the key thing. Do we really believe that the author of our story has our best interest at heart? If we do, and we really believe that He wants us to be the hero in this story, and that what He has for us, if we will follow Him, is beyond anything that we could even imagine. It's a different story than the story we typically tell ourselves that goes something like this. I'm owed certain circumstances. And if those circumstances don't come, I'm a victim. Woe is me. The story's happening to me. You know, heroes have choices in stories. Victims don't have choices. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll uncover that and we'll delve into it. And I think Paul had the right story. And he lived a life where he got to the end. He said, I did good. And he also said, that doesn't mean anything before God. He's gonna, God's going to be the one that decides this. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm convinced I've laid up a crown that will never perish. And that's who's telling us all this. And whose example we have the opportunity to follow. God, thank you for this amazing work. Thank you for Phoebe and Apollo and Aquila and Priscilla and all these people who've gone before us, paved the way for us to have our walk. God, we live in times that where darkness is is um, descending on our land. Darkness is descending on the world, and yet the light is getting brighter in the world. And I pray that you would help us be beacons of light wherever we are, to be faithful daily to give cups of cold water, and to do faithful things like take a letter to somebody for somebody someplace. Look at that fairly mundane action that turned into something that is blessing us today. And we never know all the things you're going to do with little faithful things that we are willing to do. But God, we can trust you that you know what's best. I pray that you'll help us take this message of righteousness coming into the world through our faithful obedience just where we are, manifesting our gifts, 
being willing to love our neighbors, being willing to engage with people where they are, encouraging them to move forward a step like Jesus did. I pray that you'll just give us the knowledge and the power and the wisdom just to embrace those acts of walking in the Spirit, those acts of walking in faith, that righteousness might reign in the sphere that we influence. In Christ's name, amen.